Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, and today it is my pleasure to have as my guest, Debbie Weiss. Debbie Weiss turned to writing in 2013 when she lost her partner and high school sweetheart of 32 years and found herself on her own for the first time in her life. She's the author of Available As Is, a midlife widow's search for love about creating a new life and finding hope after widowhood. Her writing has been published in the New York Times, Modern Love Column, and Huffington Post, among other publications. A former lawyer, she's proudest of earning her MFA in creative writing in 2020 at age 56. Debbie, welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast. It is a pleasure having you here today. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. And for our, our listeners, Debbie's book available as is a really, really great read. It's funny. It's poignant. It's powerful. It has just a little bit of something for everybody. It also has some great tools for individuals who are grieving any kind of a loss. So You've really put together a magnificent piece of work, Debbie. Thank you. That means a lot to me. You're welcome. And so just jumping right in, please tell our listeners about those experiences that have shaped your life paths, your life choices today. Okay. Um, let's see. I was raised in a small, at the time, small town in Northern California. Um, my dad is actually a nuclear physicist. And my life was pretty normal. I'm an only child, a pretty quiet life, until my mom died when I was 10. Um, after that, I just, you know, I went straight through school. I was a lawyer at 24. Uh, the biggest thing in my life was my partner. I've known my late husband, George, since I was seven. Our parents worked together. They were both scientists. And we got pushed together at family events over the years. And eventually, we started dating when I was 17. I needed a date to my high school prom. I was a geek. And he was uh, 21, and he was a senior majoring in engineering at UC Berkeley. We were together ever since. I retired from practicing law at 40. I'm very happy as an unemployed slacker. And um, in 2009, George was diagnosed with metastasized male breast cancer. We had some good years, but uh, things got much worse in about mid-2012, and he passed in 20, April of 2013. Yeah, 32 years, that is a long time to be with any one person. And, you know, we talk about losses that any loss changes the landscape of our lives. It changes who we are, it changes, you know, just the fabric of our lives. But when you're with somebody for 32 years and all of a sudden your partner dies, that has to, I would imagine, have really, really wreaked some havoc on your assumptive world. Completely. Very much so. Um, we were very isolated. We were pretty isolated people. We we're both introverts. Neither. We were both pretty antisocial back then. Um, 
we didn't have kids. And he was in denial when he got sick. Uh, at first, he was fine. He treated his work sort of like a series of bad, you know, his illness like a series of bad business meetings going to chemo. He was a tech guy who was the lead guy on a quick end and into it. Uh, but as he worsened over time, he thought he was getting better. I, I, cancer may have invaded his brain, honestly. I don't know, but he got, he thought he was getting better and he was dying. He kept me from his doctors. He kept his parents out of it, which was very painful for them. And when he died, there was a tremendous, I had a tremendous amount of guilt uh, that I hadn't been more proactive and, and really seeing what was happening. And I felt very guilty towards his, to his parents and um, completely lost. I mean, you know, for so many years, you know, we'd lived together since I was 25 and I'd got straight from my dad's house. We'd, you know, woken up together, gone to sleep together, had all our, most, our dinner together every night, despite his work schedule. And then suddenly I was alone and uh, very lost. Yeah, and, and particularly, not only was the isolation, but I really got a sense from reading your book that the caregiver guilt really, really, really just got to you in a lot of different ways. As you said, you wanted to be, should have been more proactive. How did you end up working that through? How did you end up addressing that and, and coming to terms with that? Well, yeah, that was the other thing too. They felt like I was a very poor caregiver. You know, he was getting worse and I hadn't realized later he turned down everything the hospital offered. He had to interact with them. So he turned down a nurse. He turned down palliative care. He turned everything down. I didn't realize these were options. So I was caring for him as he was falling apart and thinking, well, am I contaminating anything? What am I doing? You know, is this, is this sanitary? Is this okay? Um, how I dealt with the guilt was probably not well. I was told later when I had therapy that I had PTSD, mm -hmm. but I had anxiety attacks and I'd drive over to my dad's house in the middle of the night, uh, like at 2 a.m. Um, they lived about seven minutes away. Um, and what helped is I got grief therapy and started to see that this wasn't all my fault. And I started to be out with people a bit more and do things like long walks, yoga classes, which was very positive. Um, the hard part was the, the mainly the loneliness was probably like the, the crazy part. That was the part that was kind of pushing me over. Yeah, and I, and I could see because you you didn't have any children, correct? Correct. So no children. So you found yourself all of a sudden by yourself after being with the love of your life for thirty two years. Before we get into anything else with the book, why don't you tell if you're Tell us a little bit about George. I always like to ask these questions, you know, just because I just like to hear, hear about the people that you've lost through your eyes. So um, if you, if you would indulge us a little bit, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about George. Okay. George was born in 1959. Uh, he was four years older than I was when he passed. He was 53. He was kind of a kid genius. He was an electronics whiz. He won all the science fairs. He had 800 SAT scores, uh, had a close group of friends. We lived in Walnut Creek, California, which back then was sort of a smallish Northern California town. He went to UC Berkeley. Um, 
He was really fun. He had a crazy sense of humor. His favorite band was the Ramones. We saw them every year when they came to town. He loved punk rock, stiff little fingers, dead Kennedys. We saw the uh, the Clash, the original Pretenders at concert with the original Marina. I mean, this is mm-hmm. this is that. George loved to cook. Uh, later, he made very elaborate recipes. We had all these fancy cookbooks. Um, he loved tech. He could build anything. He built like turntable. He did our home wiring. I never want to help somebody wire a house again for um, network capability, but we did that. Uh, we drove all over San Francisco, getting crazy ingredients for food. And probably most important, we cry. Um, he was really kind to people. You know, he was very good at his job and he was uber smart, but he didn't patronize people. He was an amazing mentor and he helped a lot of engineers go on to have great careers. He was so good at helping the people on his team. Quicken uh, was astonishing in that it was always on time and the most profitable because it had such a small team who worked so well together. And that was because of George. And one of the things that, another thing that impressed me about reading about George in the book is he built his own computer. He did, guys. He built a few, yes, he did. Some, he built a few of them. Yeah, he did. And I'm, and you, I think you mentioned in the book that those computers ran better than the ones you could buy anywhere else, that it was just faster oh, I, and more efficient. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he could. Yeah, and he did our own home network. He did, he was... Working on our home theater system when he passed, that was way too complicated for me. He, you know, he, if something, you know, he put his own software together. He, yeah, he could build anything. It was pretty amazing. He, when he was younger, he rebuilt a Fiat X19. Wow. This is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he just, you know, hearing about him now and reading about him, it just, it just really emphasizes how special and how, how cool he really was. And I could see why you were with him for 32 years. Oh, yeah. He was. And, you know, for all those brains, he had, it was really funny. He had a great sense of humor. And again, what I just couldn't want to emphasize that he was really kind to everybody and helpful to everybody. He was the guy at work where whoever was struggling with something, he'd pick up the furniture. He was really strong, you know. He wasn't pretentious or snotty or anything you know he was he was the person who would help anybody with a computer problem or help carry anything or help give anybody a a recommendation or advise them i just i kind of want to emphasize what a great guy he was well it sounds like as talented as he was it wasn't about him it was about making those others around him better being a mentor having an impact through what he did and what he could do best yes very much so. You know, you mentioned caregivers' guilt too, and I get for me, and you know, that's one of the things that I resonated with in the book that with my own daughter Janine, who had transitioned. And I use the term transition to signify that final finality of of, of the, our physical existence in the world and a transition into another existence. Um, I had guilt over the fact that I. Did that feel I was as great a caregiver to her, especially with the physical stuff? I was useless with that. And I really, I really, as I, as I was reading about your journey, I started thinking of, about how I felt about my own, what I felt was perceived caregiver inadequacies for different reasons, but yet still there. 
And then what I learned, ironically, through her cat, Bootsy, was that there's different levels of caregiving. There's emotional caregiving. There's being present for somebody when they need to be. It's attending to those little things. And it's not about doing everything well. It's doing some, some aspects well. And then realizing that to try to hand off other duties, caregiving duties to other individuals who do it better than you. So my cat actually taught me that I wasn't as bad as a caregiver as I thought I was. But, you know, but I still had that guilt. And, um, and also in terms of the prognosis you got for, with, with his cancer, I know was, was you, you saw exactly what the prognosis was. You, you knew it wasn't going to be a good outcome. And for me, it was the same thing with my daughter. And I, and I, I resonated at that moment where you got the prognosis. And when I got the prognosis, it took me back to that time. So there was a lot I aligned within your book just from the whole process that we went through. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I did have a tremendous amount of guilt. You know, I obviously was trained as a lawyer, not a nurse. And what I did realize later that in his denial, George turned down all the kinds of outside care we could have through the hospital or other organizations. He thought he was fine. And he'd always been the dominant one in our relationship. You know, he was four years older and super smart. And I was kind of passive back, back then, not anymore. And so I did have a tremendous amount of guilt because I was caring for him and I'm not a nurse and I was doing things and thinking, well, is this, is this sanitary enough? Is this okay? He wouldn't let me get like a hospital bed. Eventually we got some part-time, a, a male nurse who was part-time who came in and helped. It wasn't enough, but it was better. Um, that had it, but yeah, I had a tremendous amount of issues with, with the guilt. And, and I, you know, one of the things that had happened and this is a, something that just occurred to me. And if you want to talk about this, fine. If not, I, I would understand it. But you had a dream visit from from George at some point. Was that where he actually came to you in a dream and you had a conversation? Ah, uh, yes and no. I have had positive dreams about George. My book is a work of creative nonfiction. That was kind of an amalgam of, of things. Um, that wasn't a precise. Right. But I have, I have had positive dreams about George where he's told me everything's okay, but, you know, he has to go away. Mm -hmm. That everything was fine. And, you know, he wanted to give me the gift of, of carrying on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these are dreams, so it's more symbolic. But that's, that's what I've taken from it. I also think that that was one of the more powerful moments of the book when you described that. Because... Yeah. I think for anybody who's grieving and they wonder, well, geez, can our loved ones communicate? Can they come to us in dreams? Can there be some type of, not closure to the life, but closure to the, the, the event, the cause of death, the events that led up to that? Mm -hmm. I think you can give readers hope, you know, just by, you know, just, just through that, that description. To me, that was very powerful in the book when Thank I read you. that. I wanted that to... I wanted to give George a chance to speak, and I wanted to give a sense of resolution with the guilt. Um, writing tremendously helped me putting my story out there and finding that there were a lot of people who had the same experience and had to move on and ultimately got past it because, you know, and also, you know, the idea that it's kind of cliche, but you can only do the best you can do. Um, 
put in these circumstances where we're not our best selves. I would have, I was angry. I was impatient. I was on my own. I'm don't feel bad to George excluded his parents who could have helped who had, you know, more resources, but he wouldn't let out sort of resources in to let people in who were better at this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, who could have, could have helped because he didn't think he was dying. And so ultimately for me, it was a matter of kind of saying, well, you know, you can do the best you can do and you have to look at your motives. And then from then on, move hope, move on. You know, my, my book, I wrote it in part to offer hope for the idea of getting over that kind of guilt and for moving on to find a new self and a new life. And, you know, Don Miguel Ruiz, you know, wrote the four agreements and one of the, he talked about four basic principles that we could live our life by. One of those was always do your best. But he, in that chapter, he talked about our best can be defined by the, by circumstances. And if you did your best, given the circumstances you were dealt with, dealt with, that was good enough. And so it's like, always do your best, but understand that the definition of best is going to be dictated by the circumstances we find ourselves in. That makes sense. I mean, yes, I could do far better organizing George's estate. That's kind of my skill set than I could do uh, dealing with a dying man who was physically disintegrating and fighting me at every turn in terms of trying to uh, ameliorate that situation. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it sounds maybe a little cold now, but at the time it was horrifically painful and I felt terribly. I was falling apart myself. I wasn't sleeping. I had these terrible hives. You know, the doctors mm-hmm. couldn't out what it was. I'm sure it was stress. So I was on prednisone. Which is like being on cocaine or something. You're just so wired. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I was kind of disintegrating, and eventually, I said, we got we got some help, which helped a bit, but not completely. You know, George wasn't wouldn't you know do a hospital bed. He was taking a few Vicodin. We probably should have been on morphine. He just worked up until the end. His energies went into work. So up until the weekend before he died, he died on a say a Wednesday. Up until that Friday, he was coding Quicken. And people at work didn't know he was that sick. When I told them that he died, they were like, we knew he was working from home and he wasn't doing great, but we, we didn't know he was dying. So he really did this through sense of will. And one thing I had to look at was that he lived how he wanted to. He lived exactly how he chose to live. He, you know, he chose to be in, an, in a chair with his tanks, probably in a lot of agony doing this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting with my daughter, I wanted to try to get her into some clinical trials because she had a, a, a cancer that wasn't, a form of cancer that wasn't curable, but she had been diagnosed three weeks after giving birth to her only daughter. And, oh yeah. And she, she, she said, no, I want to be at home with my family. I want to be at home with my significant other. I want to be at home with with my daughter and she lived life on her terms and she also transitioned on her terms it took me a while to realize that that all of the the convincing i could have done in the world to get her to do those clinical trials to get her to just try one more treatment option wasn't going to work because she had made up her mind that she was she lived life on her terms she was going to transition on her terms and I had to come to that realization. And when reading about your journey with George, 
it brought me back to also that moment. I saw some, some synchronicity, some serendipity with that, some alignment. I understand. Yeah. I see that. I can see that. Yeah. I, I couldn't see. So yeah. He excluded me from his treatment. I found out afterwards he'd had an order in place that prevented his doctors from speaking with me, which was odd because I'm a pretty confident person. And I was also his next of kin in the sense, I mean, his parents were alive, but if something were to happen, I, I needed to be informed to make decisions. One thing I do regret, as I said, is that I was not proactive enough to kind of put on my lawyer hat and get in there and get behind his back even and say, okay, look, this is this ridiculous situation you've allowed yourself as a hospital to be in. But it, in a way, it didn't matter because he lived far longer than he was expected to after his diagnosis. He accomplished far more than was expected of him. So his passing was inevitable. Um, I don't think there was anything we could have done differently. And again, he lived as he wanted to, and he really only kind of was really out of it for a couple of weeks. It sounds like he did live the way he wanted to live. Very much so. He died as Mr. Quicken. Yes. Which he would consider an honor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, his work was a big part of his life. You know, that's where he, he left his legacy. Very much so. Let's get into after George's death. I know you went into, you went into the world of online dating. About um, four after he died. Yeah, it was over a year. Yes. Yeah, it was over a year. Not right after, but it was over yeah. a year. Yeah. Um, um, that you went into online line dating. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience, what it was like for you. Um, you know, without naming names, what gravitated you to online dating? And um, let's talk about that for a little bit. Well, so there's kind of two sides to that. I mean, at the most trivial level, I have been 14 months since he passed. I was 50. Um, I wanted to have a date again. I wanted maybe to have a partner. You know, I never dated when I was in high school or college. I went from being an, a geek to having a, a boyfriend who became my husband. Mm. And so I wanted to see what the world looked like uh, from a dating perspective. And ultimately, I, I wanted to have a partner again. I didn't, I didn't see myself living the rest of my life alone. Um, on the and on a deeper level, you know, I was trying to find myself. I was very lost. You know, I don't know how how you are, what it's like. You know, when you're, I was Mrs. George without George, right? And there's no more Mr. Quick. And I was completely lost. I mean, what did, I didn't know. What do I eat? I can't, couldn't sleep. God, that wasn't happening. Um, I was listening to his favorite music on his very fancy turntable on a stereo system I could barely use in the house that was. He had chosen and decorated to his specifications. Hmm. I didn't know, what do I wear? What do I do? What do I, you know, my life was him. So I was very much looking to see sort of, well, who, who was I on my own? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did you discover about online dating? What, I mean, what would you tell anybody who was thinking of doing online dating under any circumstances after the loss of a spouse? Funny, that's what I was writing. That's what I've written a lot about. Um, one thing I would say is do not date until you have found yourself. 
dating is not a good way when you're looking to find your true self. Because second piece, the online dating world is pretty flipping nasty. And I would say especially so for women. Um, you know, I mean, the short answer, there's a hell of a lot of schmucks out there. It's probably not worth your time. But um, I'll, although ultimately I did find my current partner of five years online. So there is that persistence. But for someone who's looking to do this after being uh, widowed or losing their partner, I would say find yourself before you start online dating and have another life in place that dating isn't, isn't a substitute for a full and rich life with friends and hobbies and activities and other kinds of love and support because it can be really hostile and enervating. And weirdly enough, surreal. This is where I started writing because I couldn't believe these people existed in the real world. Yeah, with the experiences you described in your book, it was like I was taken to kind of like another universe with with some of the experiences that you described with your, you know, with your encounters with with online dating and your and you know the some of the events that that, that transpired. I'm thinking. You know, I've been married now for 41 years, and if my spouse transitions before me, I'm thinking, God, where do I start? Would would I would I even want to do online dating? Would I even want to do something like, hey, what's your sign? Or you know, let me meet your, you know, I, I don't know if I'd want to do that. Um, and you know, it would be it would be challenging for me to 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 think about doing the online dating piece just from you know, what you've described as this that's. It's like a very hostile environment and people who their profiles don't necessarily tell you who they are. And yeah, and unfortunately they do. And if they do believe them, I mean, that was yep. the biggest joke in my book who people didn't like his profile actually spelled it all out. I was just too busy envisioning this astonishing future in the beautiful Berkeley Hills. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm 60 now. And if I lost my career partner, I don't think I would go to online dating. Again, um, you know, I was retired and I was uh, a few months, you know, fairly soon after George died, I did get back into writing at one point with one writing teacher who was sort of through a synagogue who was very kind and then through a weekly writing class. So some of it I looked at is just kind of like meeting these people and having these coffees and just kind of accumulating this information. You know, I was kind of getting writing material. Again, I was retired. I have a lot of time. So mm-hmm. I was you know, somebody for coffee before a writing class and then write about them for our little flash fiction piece or something. I mean, it wasn't cruel, but I, I mean, I did have to look at this as kind of an exercise in surrealism. I joke that it was kind of like being thrown into a bad Fellini movie. Yeah. I mean, some kind of a bad movie, that's for sure. You mentioned something in your book that fascinated me because I've never, I've, I've never heard this term applied to bereavement. You talk about sexual bereavement in your book. Mm -hmm. Can you explain from your perspective how that played out for you, what that meant to you? And if you discovered or in talking with other widows or widowers, if they've experienced a similar path? Well, I didn't coin sexual bereavement. It was coined, I believe, by a researcher and woman. I don't know. She might be a psychiatrist psychologist. Her name is Alice, Alice Radosh, I believe, R-A-D-O-S-H. 
Uh, she coined the term, and it was from some research she did with widows. I don't know if widowers were included. Widows about missing the physical part of their lives with their uh, spouses who were gone, about having sexual urges again, and how that was really stigmatized. That wasn't something people talked about. Uh, the widows said this wasn't something anybody wanted to hear about. Um, but that it was something they wanted to talk about, that they wanted to be able to be open about. So that was something I wanted to talk about in my book. Um, because, you know, when you lose somebody, uh, maybe a spouse, you're alive, right? And so there's the con conflict to me. Maybe it's a little paradoxical. You've got your grief, right? And that's mm -hmm. horrible. But at the same time, this person's out of their suffering. This is all that can happen. And you're alive. And there is this sense of, oh, my God, I'm still alive. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And after a while, I think that's where some of that comes in in terms of urges. And not necessarily sexual, just I want to live, right? I mean, I'm still alive. I still have time left. And this loss is also making me see how precious my life is. It's diminished in some ways because this person I love has transitioned. But at the same time, this is all I have left, and not to live that life fully is almost to dishonor them in some way. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, and really, you know, part of our experience as human beings is is the physicality and the sexual part of that. That is a part of any relationship, great relationship, and when your spouse dies, you miss that. And right, and with relationship, I mean, it isn't just sex; yeah. it's companionship. Yeah. I mean. You know, your spouse is gone. You get to wake up alone every morning. The bed's really yep. cold. Nobody's asking, what are your plans for the day? I mean, I remember the saddest part for me was having nobody to ask me, how was your day? Yeah. But no, nobody would ask. Um, and we're going on a trip, and I was seeing these things at a museum, and there was nobody to say, well, what do you think of the Mona Lisa? <laughs> you know, or yeah. whatever. Yep. I, how does this look to you? Um, to share those reflections with. So I would, I would say that sexual bereavement certainly does cover the sexual aspect, but I would, for me at least, in thinking about it or describing it, I would talk about the whole aspect of, of companionship. You know, people say when you've been married a while, the passion fades, but what lasts and what's important is the companion it loves. And that is important too, because, because that is with, Without, you know, we, we need that companionship. We need to be friends as well as we need to be lovers. And, you know, that there's that, that friendship piece and then there's a love piece. And I think they both go hand in hand. So what have you discovered? What do you think the, what, what about grief and its impact on relationship choices after the death of a spouse? What, what is your, your thoughts about that? God, it certainly trashed my judgment. I mean, I'm a pretty bright person. I'm a lawyer, and it completely thrashed my judgment. I mean, I was, you know, accepting things that were not right, and I didn't really want. Now, part of that for me was I was really ignorant. So I had the whammy of grief and the loneliness. I was very lonely. Again, no kids, pretty isolated life. So I was building friendships, everything from scratch. So, but I hadn't dated. So I kind of didn't realize, like, this middle aged guy, you know, he wasn't, um, he wasn't just a poor representation. He was a real messed up anomaly there. But I, I think grief can impact our choices because we don't want to be alone, right? 
being alone with those feelings can be terrifying. Um, you know, and the best thing to when the things are terrible is to have, be with a friend, someone to talk to, someone to be with. Uh, waking up alone every morning, every day at 3.30 and not being able to go back to sleep is pretty gruesome. You know, I, I'm not a partier. I like to be home at night. But, you know, I would, I would you know, if I was dating someone who were out late at Frank, great, at least I'm not home. Grief really messes with your judgment because it brings this lonely, you know, at least losing a spouse, there's that loneliness and the wanting to feel something else and to get a release from that loneliness. So I, I think that if you're dating while grieving and, you know, grieving continues for a long time, to be very, very cautious about making sure you're not uh, dealing with impinged judgment, to make sure that mm -hmm. you're dealing with your, that your judgment is in place and you're not settling for things just because you're lonely or wanting to escape your feelings. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the things we do know is that cognitively, the loss does impact our, our decision-making. It impacts our thinking. It clouds our judgment. And that's just a, a normal outcome of, of experiencing loss. And I think that's why a lot of individuals or individuals in the bereavement field will say, don't make any major decisions for at least the first year. And I would even say, you know, time is relative. If it takes you longer than a year, do it, you know, just make that decision when you're ready. But I think that's one of the reasons that individuals who are in the bereavement field will caution newly bereaved individuals not to make major decisions in their life right away. I agree. Yes, very much so. I think that's why. Because you're making decisions that are maybe more reactive than sought out. You know, like yep. this house has too many memories. I, I was, um, I don't know, eight or nine years into my loss before I moved. Although I, the area I lived in, there were, there were reasons to stay. But yeah, I very much so because your decision might really be, you know, you're maybe you're not thinking so smart about like long-term finances so much as, hey, I just want a different experience. But that could maybe risk your long-term financial security or, hey, this guy seems amazing. And when we've been and we're in love and it's like, that isn't that. So what are some suggestions you have for men or women and women who are looking to re-engage in life and re-engage in life with a partner following the death of their spouses? What suggestions do you have for, for those individuals? First of all, wait until you formed a new self. Wait till you feel strong. 14 months really wasn't enough for me. At that point, making friends was good, but dating probably not. Um, or certainly or it probably should have been at a much more trivial level. Um, by the time you date, you probably should maybe have some idea what you want. You know, do you want to have fun? Are you looking for a friends with benefit? At what level are you wanting to re-engage? Do you want to be married again? That type of thing would be another issue. Also, have a full life. I mean, dating isn't the only way to um, find engagement and be with people or find help. You know, for men, please learn how to run your washing machine, your dishwasher, take yourself to medical appointments. You aren't looking for a substitute nurse or wife here, but, you know, looking for right. someone and you a genuine partner, you know, for women, respectfully. Uh, and I had to do this. Figure out your finances. <laughs> Um, that type of thing and how you want to live on your own. For me, the most helpful things um, was when I stopped looking so much at dating and started to look at engaging in general and taking the things that I loved and making them things I did with other people. For example, from walking, I, I joined walking groups and hiking groups. 
And then my weekends were very full with this great hikes. And I was engaging with both men and women in a non-dating, much, I don't know what to say, a much more natural, organic kind of situation. Mm -hmm. My writing, I joined a writing class and a writing group. Now, you're not going to meet the same, the volume of people you'll meet online. But I would say it's very important that dating is a, is a, is a reasonable piece of the pie of how you're re-engaging. It isn't a disproportionate piece because it can go, um, it's so unpredictable. Yeah, it is. And, and I saw where you started to get to the other side of your grief after the transition of George is when you started engaging with, with groups, with men, you had men friends, you had women friends, and you were basically, to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you were comfortable being with yourself. At that and point, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you were. And that's, I think, when you, I think you started recreating a world and a world that reflected your new reality without George. Yes, very much so. And a world that I wanted to live in and could see myself living in. Mm -hmm. And that's where we, the power of choice comes in, the power of, of just exercising our free will to create that world if, if we want to live in after catastrophic loss. So, all right, one last question, and this is going to give you an opportunity to promote yourself, promote your services, promote your book. People want to get in touch with you, purchase your book, find out more about what you got going on. What's the best way for them to do that, Debbie? If you want to buy my book, um, the optimal way, it's, my book is called Available As Is, A Midlife Widow's Search for Love. The best thing you can do is order it from your local bookstore. But my local bookstore here in Benicia has been amazing to me. Um, if you'd like to buy my book and like me, you don't like to leave the house, it's on Amazon, where it's gotten some decent traction, available as is. If you want to talk to me, and I don't offer, I mean, my service, I'm a volunteer memoir teacher. I teach writing for fun. I'm doing, I'm a yoga teacher, so I'm teaching writing and yoga. Um, but um, if you want to find me, I'm, my website is Debbie Weiss Author. Now, the confusing part, bear with me on this. There is another Debbie R. Weiss out there. She is a brunette. I am a blonde, but we are both Jewish widows. So please, I am the, I am the California Debbie Weiss. She's New Jersey and her website, she's got brunette hair and glasses and my website has me standing on a beach. So Debbie Weiss author is how to find me. I'm on Facebook as Debbie Weiss. I'm on Instagram as Debbie Weiss author, I believe. I'm on TikTok, but I don't go there because it's creepy. And um, so that's, that's pretty much it. If you want me, yeah, best thing is contact me through my website, Debbie White's author, or find me on Facebook. It's Debbie Weiss. And I'll make sure, Debbie, I have all that information in, in the show notes, the video details, when it goes on YouTube as well. So with that, um, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you for uh, taking time out of your day to spend with us today, Debbie. Oh, thank you for having me on here. I really... I mean, I hope we help somebody. I, I've tried to offer hope in my book. I hope that helped. And for, and for anybody that is thinking of purchasing this book, purchase this book. It's a great book, great read. Um, it's got something for everybody and particularly some great tools for individuals who are looking to, to, to get to the other side of grief. So with that, that is a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace.
Thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. And don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.